Hi, my name is Yasmin Tarehi, and this is Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being, and spirituality. Today's episode is about the history of psychedelics and the biggest kept secret with Brian Murresco. He's the author of The Immortality Key, The Secret History of the Religion with No Name. The Immortality Key is a revolutionary book that's equal parts deep history and cutting-edge science with new evidence that suggests the ritual use of psychedelics across the Greco-Roman world and its later influence on the Christian Eucharist. Yes, you heard me correctly. We dive into Brian's 10-year investigation through Greece, Germany, France, and Italy, and his research in the Vatican secret archives to learn more about how psychedelics influence the Abrahamic religions today. Brian's also been practicing law for 15 years, and in 2016, he became the founding executive director of Doctors for Cannabis Regulation. So, Brian, welcome to the show. Good to be here, Yasmin. Shukran. (laughs) So, Brian is multilingual, so we'll probably hear a little bit of uh, different languages throughout this interview for those of you who are (laughs) meeting him for the first time. So, Brian, your book, The Immortality Key, is incredibly fascinating. Uh, I just want to kick it off with this phrase, what do you mean by dying before dying? And what do you think St. Paul meant by the phrase, if you die before you die, you won't die when you die? Right. That's, it's a beautiful line from the St. Paul's Monastery at Mount Athos in Greece. And it, it, sounds, it sounds nice in Greek. It goes, an pethanis, prim pethanis, denta pethanis, otan pethanis. Um, it's this concept that if you die in this lifetime, in some kind of near-death experience, some kind of ecstatic state, um, I mean, really approach what feels like a mini-death, right? And, and sometimes this can be very kind of terrifying, excruciatingly real. The idea being that if, if you approach what in psychological language we call an ego death, like if you remove all these layers that you've been building up in your psyche for all these years— at the root of all that seems to be this um, almost mystical state of awareness, and that um, we know from the folks who go into these clinical trials at Hopkins and NYU and elsewhere that when they enter this state, they're often very transformed by it. Um, so even though it, it can be terrifying at the time, when they emerge from this um, under the influence of like psilocybin, for example, this psychedelic, they often come out the other side with a very different view of their own death. So in other words, that that like pre-experiencing something like their death here actually reduces anxiety around death or reduces end-of-life distress. Um, and so, you know, both in the clinical literature, but also in ancient mysticism, you see this idea time and time again, that that dying before dying somehow gives us this amazing insight on life and the death and dying process. Yeah. And can you also talk about, you know, how the modern Eucharist, and I think maybe for folks who are not Catholic or Christian, if you could define what that means, you know, the wine and, and wafer offering how that was based on this uh, earlier version that consisted of a psychedelic brew and why that phrase dying before dying is so kind of important to that concept of uh, folks who experience this ego dissolution, this death. Um, right. So, so I mean, in, in the book, I, I'm essentially pursuing this hypothesis that that is not mine. It, it pops up in the 1960s and 70s. And it's the idea that some of these ancient pre-Christian religions and mystery traditions amongst the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans, that some of their initiation rituals may have availed themselves of psychedelics in order to enter into these mystical, spiritual states of mind, and that maybe some of that ritual 
passed its way into the Eucharist of Christianity. And so, you know, the, there's two and a half billion Christians in the world. I was raised Catholic. And so each denomination looks at it kind of differently. I, I was taught that, you know, when, when the priest consecrates uh, the bread and the wine during the Mass, that it essentially becomes, quite literally, um, the flesh and blood of Jesus. And, and this comes right out of the Gospels, which were written in Greek in the first century AD. And so it's it's this very strange idea of drinking the blood of the God to become the God. And you do find images like that. You find language like that in the ancient Greek pre-Christian literature around the mysteries of Dionysus, for example. So the hypothesis is, is essentially that, you know, that some of these ancient Greek speakers may have drunk the blood of Dionysus to become Dionysus in these strange rites and ceremonies. Maybe some of that made its way into early Christianity in those first centuries after Jesus. And Brian, can you take us through your investigation that kind of led you to this, um, you know, this kind of conclusion and thesis? Like, Talk about your time uh, in Greece and Germany and Spain. Like, what are some of the highlights that you learned? Cool. So the the book is essentially divided into two parts. The first part's about beer, uh, which is this uh, prehistoric beverage, and the second part is about wine. And so, in, in order to in order to tie the pagan world to the Christian world, um, you know, the the obvious common denominator there is wine. But before sacraments of wine, um, and you find that in ancient Egypt, you find that amongst the ancient Canaanites and the Phoenicians, you find these wine ceremonies amongst the Israelites, the Judahites, the Babylonians. I mean, it's all over the ancient Near East and the ancient Mediterranean. But that that's really the, the kind of the first and second millennium before Jesus. Long before that, there were these beer ceremonies too. And so I basically spent a long time uh, trying to figure out the what the oldest evidence for beer was. Turns out it could go back like twelve or 13,000 years. And there's actually a debate in academia, that that beer may have fueled civilization as we know it. That that you know we we sort of went from hunting and gathering um, to uh, to farming um, these cereal crops like barley and wheat, etc. Um, not not to bake bread, but to brew beer. And so there, there's a pretty serious debate about that. And so I, I tried to follow beer for thousands of thousands of years in deep prehistory, all the way into these mysteries of Eleusis. And it's kind of like the most famous religious ritual of ancient Greece. It survives for like 2,000 years, from about 1500 BC to the 4th century AD. And there was something like, you know, a primitive beer sacrament that was involved in this mystery. Um, and in 1978, the, the, this, this trio of renegade scholars essentially claimed that the beer they were drinking was spiked with psychedelics. That, that specifically, it was spiked with something like LSD. Um, that the Greeks had figured out some way to uh, to synthesize or to extract um, um, an alkaloid from ergot, which is this natural fungus that grows on the grains and could very well have been around um, for, for thousands and thousands of years. So that's how I spend the whole first half of the book is asking questions from German brewmasters and, and the archaeologists in Greece if there's any merit to this hypothesis. Wow. And what are some of the implications um, of this hypothesis for our modern times and the way that we kind of have modernized religion today? Right. I mean, it does sound totally irrelevant. I get that. So why is, <laughs> why is that? This is all ancient history. Why would anybody but a classicist care about this? You know, I, I, I grew up studying Latin and Greek in high school. It's it, I went to college to study Latin, Greek and Sanskrit and classical Arabic, by the way. Like I was just a nerdy, a nerdy linguist. 
um, and and proudly so. But but I think I think this matters because it kind of um, I mean if this is true, right? And and I still think it's it's an open question. Um, I, I kind of present the book as 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 proof of concept and you know an, an interesting idea that deserves attention from from academia. But you know if it is true then it means that part of the foundation of Western civilization was the ritual consumption of these mind-altering drugs, which is a very big deal because when, when this when this thesis was first proposed back in the late 1970s, I mean, it was roundly denied and, and the researchers were excoriated for it. I mean, their, their careers really suffered as a result of daring to suggest that the founders of you know, of democracy and the arts and sciences and literature and philosophy and all this stuff that came from ancient Greece. It's kind of, it's kind of crazy to suggest it was, it was all born, you know, in a haze of drugs, um, which I don't, I don't think was the case, but I mean, you know, taken to its extreme, you know, you're potentially talking about rewriting, um, the, the birth narrative of Western civilization. Um, and so I think it is important today in terms of how we organize society, um, you know, the future of medicine, religion, um, everything is up for grabs if, if there's been a long, long history of the responsible, sacred use of drugs in very, um, very structured settings. Right. Yeah. And I think it also probably creates like a, an openness uh, for modern society today to maybe even consider psychedelics uh, and psychedelic use because so much of, like you said, based on your research history, what you had used psychedelics um, to kind of move progress. Um, so can you talk to us and maybe you could set this up what Eleusis is like for folks who don't know, I think, you know, our audience is uh, pretty um, wide in terms of their religious backgrounds. So not everyone uh, grew up with uh, the Christian faith. And I think it would be really great if you could maybe set some of the the stage of this up, like what was Eleusis and, you know, why were the gatekeepers women? Mm. Right. So I mentioned it briefly. Um, I, I often describe it as kind of the real religion of the ancient Greeks. You know, we, we have this this cartoonish image of these brilliant men and women somehow believing that there, there were these 12 gods and goddesses on Mount Olympus overseeing what we're up to and that Zeus is hurling thunderbolts at us, um, you know, which is which is kind of crazy. It's it's what, you know, I learned in high school mythology. It's what a lot of folks learn in in Western civilization classes. Um but you know, for 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 the Greeks, they were skeptical people. They they were very pragmatic, very practical people. And so for them, I, I, I'm not sure there was a um, a bright line between religion and science. So that they they approached things like you know existential questions and and the nature of the afterlife. They they approached this with with rigor and skepticism. And so for them, the mysteries of Eleusis was essentially this long pilgrimage from Athens, 13 miles northwest to the sanctuary, this very sacred sanctuary that was dedicated to the goddess uh, Demeter, who was the, the goddess of the grain, and her daughter Persephone, who was abducted into the underworld by the king of the dead and magically resurrects. And it seems like this silly kind of fertility narrative about the seasons. But for some reason, the ancient Greeks took it very seriously. And when they went there once in their life, um, again, under very strict conditions, and when they drunk of this potion, this this kind of beer-based grain potion, um, for some reason, they almost universally report a dramatic transformation in the relationship with death. Um, you know, Plato talks about Eleusis as the holiest of mysteries. Um, and Pindar, the great you know poet of the time, 
um, talks about that only those who went there would understand what happens at the end of their life and the beginning of a new life that comes after. Cicero in the first century BC says, Eleusis is the most exceptional and divine thing that Athens ever produced, right? So we're not talking about like some footnote in history. We're talking about like the glue of ancient Greece. And it's just possible that glue involves psychedelics, which is a revolutionary idea. Wow. And can you talk a little bit more about why the gatekeepers of Eleusis were women and how we went from honoring women to then burning them at the stake? I mean, I think that there was obviously this big, you know, shift uh, where a lot of the original Eucharist and the original substances were pushed out. So can you talk about what happened and timelines as well? Right. So it wasn't fun to be a woman in ancient Greece. Um, <laughs> and and yet, in the, in the mysteries of, of Eleusis, in the mysteries of Dionysus, all these kind of, uh, let's just call them traditions of death and rebirth. Let's call them initiation ceremonies. Let's call them sacred rituals. For some reason, it was women who were often tasked with the most important duties. So there, you know, Eleusis originally was a female rite of initiation. Men weren't even allowed in. And then over time, like into the classical period, the fourth century BC, fifth century BC, um, you know, we, we we have testimony that, that that women priestesses are still heavily involved in this ceremonial pageantry that takes place there, even more so in the mysteries of Dionysus. They're called Minads, these female devotees of Dionysus who drink again, the sacramental wine, enter into these ecstatic, sometimes visionary states, um, you know, becoming one with the God, one with the master of life, and one with the energy of the earth itself. Women were often the prophetesses, like at at Delphi, for example. I mean, the, you know, the spokespersons for the God Apollo. So, you know, throughout the ancient Greek world, women were often accorded this high honor in these mystery cults. And, you know, it's, I don't think it's a coincidence that women were equally esteemed at the birth of Christianity. Um, by, by the fourth century AD, as the church was becoming bigger and more patriarchal and really just stepping into the shoes of the Roman empire in terms of the power structure, you know, women, uh, women were suppressed and not really given, um, or they didn't retain that, that sense of, uh, responsibility, and, and power that they once had. But in the in the very beginning of the church, it was kind of like the Greek mysteries. There's a lot of evidence of women in house churches, which is where Christianity was celebrated, not in like big basilicas, but in homes, in private homes, in subterranean catacombs in some cases. It was women who would who would convene people together, offer their homes, um, you know, and and basically host these these love feasts, which were called agape in Greek. And so just like in the ancient pagan world, you see women taking on this really uh, influential role in paleo-Christianity. And, I mean, did this also have something to do with, um, you know, removing them from the equation, uh, also eradicating the knowledge of the psychedelic brew? I mean, how did that go hand in hand? Uh, so, I mean, so that that's one of the hypotheses that, that, that I follow. And, and this comes from uh, Professor Ruck at Boston University, who's now 85 years old. Um, and in, in the late 70s, he, he, he noticed these, these similarities, too, between you know, the mysteries of Eleusis or Dionysus and what you could call the early mysteries of Christianity. Um, you know, so it's not just, just women um, who were suppressed, but, but the, you know, this, this practice of drugs, too. In fact, like, um, the use of drugs is, is actually recorded by some of the early church fathers who were writing angry letters against these heretical Christians, the, these Gnostic Christians— they're sometimes called 
um, who are very much after a direct experience of the divine, sometimes, at least in some cases, with the use of these drugs. We have you know, written, written testimony from the 2nd, 3rd centuries AD that talk about women consecrating the wine instead of men. And, and, and it being spiked with pharmaka, which is the Greek word for drugs. So, you know, we don't know like how prevalent the practice was, but there was something there. And, you know, women and drugs kind of go hand in hand as, as you trace that history into the Middle Ages. You know, the, the women um, become the repositories of all this folk healing or traditional medicine. And, and in some cases, they become the witches, right? And what is a witch if, if nothing but, you know, an, an expert in the pharmacopoeia, right? You know, these, these bubbling cauldrons from, from Disney movies. Um, if, if, if it's one thing women are good at, it's extracting all this, all this power from magical plants and herbs and even mushrooms in some cases. So there's a really interesting history there. Do you actually know which uh, psychedelics they were using? Was there any kind of um, anything that you read that suggests like specific uh, psychedelics? So in the ancient world, I mean, we can't say for sure, but you know, I did I did find what I think is is some of the first um, hard scientific organic evidence for this ergot that I mentioned earlier, which is again this very natural fungus. It's it's how you synthesize LSD. Um, it's, it's how Hoffman himself was able to synthesize LSD back in the 1930s. And so, you know, it's possible that it was like an LSD-like alkaloid from ergot, uh, because we do have some of this evidence of, of ergot and beer from these ancient vessels in Spain, of all places, um, from the second century BC, which seems to be kind of a weird echo or an imitation of these Greek mysteries. And then um, other evidence I point to from the first century AD is some really funky wine that seems to have been spiked um, with opium and cannabis and these solanaceous plants um, like henbane um, or black nightshade. Uh, that, that came from a pharmacy in Pompeii. Uh, to, to the south of Rome. And so, you know, they're, they're, we're beginning to see the initial traces of some of this organic evidence in the ancient world. Um, and as you go, you know, again, forward in time, for some reason in Europe, things like the, these solanaceous plants, um, these what they call the nightshades, they seem to pop up time and again. That's at some point in the middle of the 16th century, you have the Pope's personal physician, Andres Laguna, talking about this witch's ointment that they would rub on their bodies and have these, you know, um, sort of ecstatic experiences flying through the night on their brooms. Um, he, he thought that it was these plants like mandrake and henbane and things like this that actually cause these, these night flights. So, you know, the lore is there for hundreds and hundreds of years. Wow. And what about the impact of uh, this on other religions in the Abrahamic faiths? Have you seen that play out with, um, Islam, for example, it's funny. I didn't, you know, I didn't follow the threads into uh, into the Islamic world so much. Um, but in in terms of the Holy Land, it's funny. You know, this this evidence is still relatively new, and I, I spent all these years trying again trying to focus on that organic data, the hard scientific data, and and it was only last year that some of that data began to to turn up in the Holy Land, uh, which is which is interesting. So in May of last year, for example. Uh, this team of researchers announced the presence of cannabis on these limestone altars at Tel Arad, south of south of Jerusalem, in what appears to be some kind of like scaled down version of Solomon's Temple, dating to the eighth century BC. Uh, which is interesting. They describe it as some of the first organic evidence for the ritual use of drugs in the Holy Land, and so it's only happening now. 
which is which is really strange. And um, I'm sure you know as excavations continue, more research is done, more testing is done on these ancient vessels. Um, you know, you, you you might find something um, all throughout the Near East. Very interesting. Wow. And so how did you actually get access to the Vatican secret archives? I'm so curious. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what was it your legal skills, your, your negotiation skills that helped? And, and I think that it's interesting that you're in such a unique position to be able to, you know, extract this information with um, your language skills. And again, you're probably your legal skills and and your network. So yeah, I'm just curious, like, how did you uh, get this like unprecedented access to the hidden archives. Uh, th- there's some luring that goes into this for sure. I mean, <laughs> I, I got to say the Vatican's quite open to this. Um, you know, I had a great time talking with their archivists and the librarians. Um, you know, I, I try to play by the rules. I sent them a very nice letter and told them uh, what manuscripts I was interested in reviewing. Um, uh, the ones belonging to Giordano Bruno, for example, uh, from the 16th century, one of these, uh, I guess you could call him a sorcerer of sorts, uh, certainly certainly a heretic. Um, and, you know, I just, I th- they're kind of intrigued, and they would th- they'd kind of laugh at me at times too, uh, which is interesting. But, you know, a lot of this is ancient history, and the church has other issues it's dealing with in the 21st century um, that, that keep it busy. And so I, I got to say, it was, it was a very welcoming environment there. It's not easy to get access. There is a long application process and letters of accreditation and referrals um, from different professors. I actually had this professor Ruck write me a letter of referral. Um, but, you know, once it takes a few months, but but once you're there, it's um, it really, I mean, for me, you know, growing up Catholic, it's kind of, um, it was a very surreal experience to walk through St. Peter's off to this, um, this majestic archive with documents dating back to the eighth century. It's kind of, it's kind of wild. Wow. And how did your uh, understanding of the Greek language and Latin, um, you know, help kind of understand the research? Was a lot of it in Greek and Latin? I, I definitely use the Greek sources as much as I can, um, yeah. which was interesting for me because, again, growing up Catholic, you know, Latin at some point became the holy language um, of of the church and Catholicism. But at the beginning, it was Greek. It was all Greek. And, you know, before the schism between East and West, before, you know, Rome went its way and and Constantinople um, went its way into the East, um, I mean, at some point, there was something that I think united the whole ancient Mediterranean. And and it's Greek. It's, it's this holy language of Greek. And so I spend a few chapters analyzing the ancient Greek of the Gospel of John, for example, which does not sound that interesting. But once you begin to tease out some of these clues, there really are symbols in, in the Gospel in Greek that, that you can only tease out in Greek, um, which aren't my ideas. You know, I'm, I'm very much relying on the scholarship of, of theologians and classicists who kind of look at this Greek and do notice a similarity to the Greek of these ancient pagan possibly psychedelic rituals. And so um, for me, it was like going back to high school in a way, just, just digging into the, to the texts and this old language. It's a, you know, a lot of fun for me, at least. Brian, did you find that there were some words that maybe were translated into English that had different meanings um, in Greek that were really kind of um, game-changing for your conclusion and hypothesis? So, I mean, for example, you know, I speak Arabic uh, and Sometimes when words are translated into English, they can be mis- misunderstood, let's say. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm just curious if your understanding of Greek um, led you to believe that certain words were maybe ill-defined when they were translated into English. 
Well, so I'll, I'll, I'll share a very obvious example. And interestingly, it does involve Arabic. So how about that? <laughs> um, so you can read the entire New Testament, um, the, the holy book of Christianity, right? You can read the whole thing in ancient Greek, its original language, and you will not find one example, not one instance of the word alcohol. And the reason for that might be obvious because alcohol, if you listen to it, kahala, alcohol is Semitic, comes from the Arabic. Um, so you, you can tell better than me what, what the root is, but you know, in, in the book I say kahala comes from the root meaning like to enliven or refresh. I think it, I think the etymology actually goes back to like kohl, kohl, K-O-H-L, but kind of like this powdered metallic substance that was used in alchemical experiments and cosmetics and things like that. So um, regardless, the alcohol is very Semitic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the Greeks did not have a word for alcohol. And I know I know that sounds silly, but the Greeks did not associate the potency of wine with its alcoholic content, right? They had they had no no word for it. So it's not to say they didn't know what fermentation was, but but for them there was another Greek word for wine. And so you see the word oinos, which is the traditional word for wine. You see it all over the New Testament. But one of the words for wine in antiquity was pharmakon. Again, that same word that means drug. It's where we get pharmacy, right? Um, it was a very common thing to call wine a pharmakon for centuries and centuries before, during, and after the life of Jesus. And so to the ancient Greeks, you know, wine is routinely described as um, unusually intoxicating and seriously mind-altering, occasionally hallucinogenic, and potentially lethal. In other words, like very different from the wine of today. And so it just goes to show you that like the language does matter. Um, they didn't they didn't think of wine as our table wine today. And so it raises very big questions. Like what did their sacramental wine look like? Wow, so interesting. Um, <laughs> I'm just processing everything that you're saying. <laughs> uh, I actually went to Catholic school for four years. I'm not Catholic, but, uh, you know, I I took Latin for four years. So I've just been fascinating by the just etymology, you know, piece of it too. Mm. So you, I don't know if you've said this, but uh, I remember reading uh, somewhere in your work, uh, the quote, the Catholic church actually started the war on drugs. And it made me laugh. (laughs) (laughs) That might be my own editorial. (laughs) Yes. I wasn't, I wasn't sure if it was yours, but I, I thought that was fascinating. And I was wondering if you could tell us what that means. Right. So, I mean, it it kind of dovetails with what we were talking about, the witches, right? So um, it's not to say there was this global conspiracy against, you know, women and drugs and psychedelics are this secret sacrament that was horribly suppressed, you know, for centuries across history. Um, You know, that's that's kind of the fun Hollywood version of this. But um, I I think the real life version is, is probably that, you know, women were known for their expertise um, with, with the natural world and the pharmacopoeia. You know, I mentioned the Pope's personal physician in the mid 16th century talking about this witch's ointment, right. With all these crazy visionary psychedelic compounds like hemlock or black nightshade, henbane, mandrake, etc. Um, you know, so they, there was concern over these substances. And when you look at the history of the witch, the witch trials and the witch burnings, um, which I think really begin in earnest in the 1420s. One of the first victims was this woman, Finicella, who was kind of, you know, w- was accused of, of using this ointment to transform into a cat and to, and to kill little kids, to suck the blood from, from children. I mean, really bizarre kind of like horror film type stuff. Um, 
But, you know, even at the very beginning there in the 1420s, you see a lot of concern over women and drugs and witches and drugs. And, and I think that that does, that does persist. And at the very end of the book, for example, I talk about this treatise that is written in 1629 by Hernando Ruiz de Alarcón. He's, uh, he's born in Mexico, um, and he writes this treatise on the heathen superstitions. And so he's essentially trying to root out Again, all these pre-Christian, you know, pagan traditions um, from the local Aztecs, and and he's he talks about their drugs. He talks about things like tobacco and peyote, which we've heard of today. But he also talks about like olaluqui, which interestingly has some things in common with uh, with LSD, apparently. Um, and he he writes this long treatise about how to burn these drugs and get rid of these drugs and. You know, this is this is a couple centuries before you see the uh, the U.S. federal government beginning to crack down on peyote in the Native American reservations. And so, again, you know, it's really difficult to to draw straight lines through history, but you have to look for um, patterns. And, and and there is a pattern of of suppressing the ritual use of drugs from the witch burnings to um, to colonization. Of, of what is Latin America today, and then into the, the you know, 20th century or the late 19th century, you see the U.S. federal government very concerned about the use of drugs by the Native Americans. And that then gives birth to all these international conventions trying to prohibit drugs like cocaine and marijuana, et cetera. And this is long before the 1970s, um, when the, the war on drugs is really exported around the world. Um, and so the, the concern throughout all this at the beginning seems to have been some kind of religious concern, a concern around um, the illegal use or the illicit use of these of these sacred drugs. Yeah, it's so interesting, the war on drugs. Um, you know, I think that in culture, it seems like we just group all types of drugs together, or at least maybe, um, you know, the government does or has for a long period of time. Um, and maybe we have over-indexed uh, because some of the other drugs that maybe are not uh, as positive uh, just got blanketed with other ones like the psychedelic drugs that, you know, could actually create some positive well-being, you know, after using it and are non-addictive um, or not as addictive, I don't think, as <laughs> some of the other drugs. Uh, so Brian, I have to ask, like, so you did all this work, you did all this research, and I imagine that you probably wanted to study psychedelics. So what I just said earlier, you can probably speak <laughs> even better than I can about, <laughs> you know, what exactly are psychedelics? Have you tried them yourself? Especially since when we kicked off the conversation, we talked about dying before dying. Um, you know, what, what's been your personal experience with this? And have you shifted your orientation on life since doing this work? Right. So, so the irony is I've never tried psychedelics, um, which is, which comes up a lot, as you can imagine, having dedicated most of my adult life to trying, trying to find the ancient evidence of them. Um, but there, I mean, there, there are these really powerful compounds that were totally off my radar until 2007. And the whole reason I went down this rabbit hole is because, you know, at that time I started to read the clinical literature on psilocybin, for example, which is the, the active compound and magic mushrooms. And it's often lumped together with like the classical hallucinogens, um, like LSD we've talked about, uh, which comes from that fungus ergot, 
or, or mescaline, which comes from peyote, which we've mentioned among the Native Americans, for example. Um, there's lots of other things you may have heard of, like, like DMT, dimethyltryptamine, which is one of the compounds in, in ayahuasca. Um, so th- there's a whole host of compounds we could discuss. And I, to be honest, I knew very little about them until 2007 when I started reading about people having very transformative experiences from one and only dose of psilocybin. And I, I just couldn't believe it. And in 2021, all these years later, if you ask Roland Griffiths at Johns Hopkins, for example, one of the you know, premier medical schools in the U.S., um, there's this crazy statistic that like 75% of the volunteers in his trials will, will wind up describing their one experience with psilocybin as among the most meaningful in their lives. And, and in some cases, the most meaningful, which is crazy because it happens in one afternoon. <laughs> it's, it's, it's from one dose. Um, and I'll never forget when, when I read kind of e- even the early data on that back in, back in 2007, uh, I couldn't believe it. And it, you know, it instantly reminded me of Eleusis. Again, this once in a lifetime experience that for some reason transformed the way the ancient Greeks thought about life and death. And, you know, they, they would talk about overcoming the fear of death and, and kind of like being guaranteed an afterlife. I mean, the, these very mystical, um, existential experiences, uh, the culminating experience of a lifetime, Professor Ruck talks about it. Uh, you know, so it was, it was just very difficult for me to put that down. And so, you know, without having tried them, I just, I went into the, the rabbit holes of history to see if there's any truth to these very controversial ideas. Wow. And Brian, do you have any curiosity in trying them? I just, I guess I want to understand why. (laughs) I guess what, you're a lawyer, so that makes you very, you know, risk averse. That makes (laughs) more sense. (laughs) Right. And I'm a law-abiding, tax-paying father of two, (laughs) very happily married. So I'm just trying to be a good, good little Catholic boy over here. Um, Come to, come to the West Coast. I think (laughs) (laughs) things are different in California. Um, yeah, well, but that—that's kind of the whole point. I mean, like you know, we're we're moving, we're evolving as as a country and and as a world. Um, you know, I, I and for sure, I mean, it's, it's it'd be crazy for me to to suggest that I wasn't impacted by the war on drugs. You know, like I, I first heard about drugs when I was ten, because these police officers came into my homeroom in I think it was fifth grade, and told me to just avoid drugs. And how bad were drugs? This is you know just after. Um, Ronald and Nancy Reagan, the Just Say No campaign. And like, it's, I mean, I can't, I can't say that didn't affect me. It did. Um, And it's just a horrible way to educate young people about drugs because we're surrounded by drugs. Every emotional experience you have is some perturbation of serotonin um, or dopamine or oxytocin. I mean, we're just, we're walking bags of drugs and, you know, (laughs) things like, things like caffeine, or even, you know, your favorite soda pop is is a drug. And, you know, your average birthday cake is just riddled with a weak supply of sugar. So, you know, we're, we're, we're surrounded by drugs. And I think I think that we're, we're getting more educated on them. Um, and there will probably come a time in the, the not too distant future where things like psychedelics might be available in a very safe setting um, with, with the resources people need um, to, to experience them, I think, in a way that's... Um, I guess, scientifically rigorous, but, but maybe even sacred. Right. Right. Yeah. It's so, you know, I, I spent my twenties in New York city, grew up in the Midwest and I felt the same way about all, all drugs were the same. And then moving to the West coast, I think has changed my mind. I think that we're just so influenced by social norms, you know, 
you know, cultural norms within the spaces and places that we live. And over time we become a product of our environment. So, um, yeah. So I'm, I'm just, you know, curious, like why you think this subject is so important, why you spent so much of your life dedicated to it. Like why, why work on this? And also like, what's next for you? Are you going to continue to do research? Uh, is there an immortality key part two coming up? <laughs> there, there just may be. It's, 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 it's hard to put this stuff down. Um, the, the honest answer why I stuck with this for so long is because, I mean, there's a couple answers. I would say that one statistic about 75% of people describing their, their one and only dose as among the most meaningful things you've ever experienced. I mean, that, 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 I think about that every day. Um, that's that to me is is just a, a crazy concept. I'm I'm still trying to wrap my my mind around it. Um, but you know, in many ways, like this the, this kind of this this hunt through history um, and through the archives of the Vatican and and the ancient languages. I mean, this goes back to when I was like 14. I mean, so in some ways, this is kind of like my my love song to the discipline that saved my life. You know, I just I I wasn't supposed to learn Latin and Greek, um, but I was I was accepted into this uh, this Jesuit prep school. Um, by these Catholic brothers to to learn these dead languages for no reason and wound up loving them and it was it was because of them that I went on to college and and had all these opportunities and could learn Arabic and could live for a summer in Cairo for example like th- that never would have happened um, without my own psychedelic experience which you know didn't involve drugs but involved me just you know just uh, locked away in history so I've I've been obsessed with the ancient world since I was fourteen. Um, and this was just the, my passion project, you know, no, no one was paying me at first <laughs> to, to, to travel around and read a bunch of dusty books. It was just, honestly, it's, it's what I did with my free time. You know, I don't watch a lot of sports. Um, I'm not in, in a fantasy football league. This, this, this was my fantasy <laughs> football league. I love that. I love that so much. <laughs> at, at what point did you, uh, you know, you said you started the research in 2007, I believe. Um, yeah. At what point did you think that this was going to become a book? Uh, did you have the intention of it being a book in the early days or did, you know, years go by and you just kind of started to think that it could be a book? Yeah, no, I really had no intent of of creating something. Um, and, you know, as I'm speaking to you now, I'm, I'm still kind of shocked that it happened. Uh, <laughs> I, was just, I, was just, I was having fun. And then, you know, 10 years into it, when I started to, to see that the, that the hard sciences were beginning to weigh in on this mystery with things like archaeochemistry, for example, which I write a lot about in the book, you know, it's real, it's relatively new over the past 10, 20 years. Uh, but there have been some really incredible discoveries that, that at least circumstantially were, were supporting the ritual use of these beers and these wines all across the ancient world for thousands and thousands of years. Um, and that, that really convinced me there was, there was a there there. And um, as the clinical trials continued, again, that data started piling up uh, from the, the psychopharmacological literature. And so, I mean, you know, it, it took a full 10 years before I thought there was something there. Um, and that's when I started reaching out to, to publishers. But for a full decade, this, this was just Brian and his boxers having a good time. <laughs> 
what has been the response of uh, the church? I mean, you said that they were definitely interested and helpful. What about, you know, the Pope? Have you heard anything from the institutions after the book got released? I'm sure that so many people are probably asking them, you know, what their thoughts are on this and, <laughs> and what it means. <laughs> right. um, I mean, you might be shocked or maybe not. But the, the church is a very big institution, um, and it's been around for a long time. And, uh, you know, th- there's a lot of room for debate, quite frankly. And, you know, it, it, was, it was the Jesuits that inspired this, this search into the origins of the faith, you know, and the, the, the maxim, you know, what good is any faith if it goes untested? And so um, I'm just, I'm trying to ask very honest questions. Um, you know, I, I don't impugn the, the divinity of Jesus. I don't really opine on the Last Supper itself. I don't know what was happening in the first century AD. I'm looking for data that helps fill in all these gaps between religion and science. I, I do think the two can live together. And so, you know, as long as we treat it like a hypothesis and as long as it stays sober and academic, um, and I rely on, on lots of friends and colleagues um, at different universities to help me, obviously, and to help lead the way, way beyond me. Um, you know, I think as long as we keep it academic, that it's it's a conversation worth having, because um, it's the kind of thing that religious professionals might want to investigate. They're already investigating it at Hopkins, for example, um, the results of a years-long study where um, priests and, and rabbis, and I think one imam, um, actually experienced psilocybin um, and talk <laughs> about and, and talk about what happened to them. I, th- I think those results are actually about to be published either later this year or early next year. So, um, you know, it's it's very topical stuff, um, and there's lots of conspiracy and controversy there. Um, but I do think it's a conversation worth having. And, you know, what has uh, surprised you the most in this journey over the last decade of research, of, you know, talking to folks, um, you know, at the Vatican? What, what surprised you the most, if you could kind of nail it on one thing? Um, I, I would say like the, the, the general reception to the idea. Um, and you know, I, I th- what I did was not courageous. Let me put it that way. <laughs> there, was nothing, <laughs> there was nothing avant-garde about releasing this book in 2020. Um, especially after, uh, you know, my friend, Michael Pollan wrote a great book, how to change your mind, which came out in 2018. Um, and again, talked about the modern history of psychedelics, really, and, and all, the, all these clinical trials. Um, and it just, it was, for me, it was a major game changer um, for the way we think about, about these drugs. Um, and also, there have been these, these decriminalization, these legalization efforts. And so, I mean, just, just put it all together. And then, you know, when I put this book out, it was very different from 1978, when the people who started this idea suffered for it. You know, uh, I mentioned Carl Ruck, who's now 85 years old. His his career definitely took a turn after he became the drug guy um, in the classics department. You, you don't want to be the drug guy in the late 1970s. And so um, the, 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 the biggest thing that stands out to me is that whenever I would approach somebody with the hypothesis, nobody slammed the door, you know, whether that was the, you know, government ministers in Greece or the curator of the Louvre or, um, you know, these, uh, these, these Boston linguists um, or these scientists, um, as long as you can approach it, again, soberly, it seemed to me that people were kind of intrigued by this idea, um, and nobody turned me away. Wow. And Brian, what are some books or resources that have inspired you or that also 
were helpful to coming up with your hypothesis. You mentioned a couple folks. Um, I just wanted to give them some credit as well. Uh, and it may be anyone else that could have just been an inspirational for, for your work. Sure. I mean, so at the time I was reading that clinical literature back in 2007, 2008, there was a book by a friend, Graham Hancock. He wrote a great book called Supernatural, which, which had come out a few years before that which to this day, I'm looking at it right now, to, to, to this day, it's just, it's one of my favorite books of all time. Um, it, it, it charts the potential use of hallucinogens um, and the relationship to cave art tens of thousands of years ago in what's known as the Great Leap Forward 50, 60,000 years ago. You know, the human species is an old species. We've been around a couple hundred thousand years, but for some reason, we don't leave evidence of abstract thought. There's no cave art that we know of Again, until that great leap forward, as Jared Diamond calls it, about 50, 60,000 years ago. And it's, it's, it's a colossal mystery. Um, and so Graham's book is, is about you know, the potential use of psychedelics and catalyzing this new abstract thought and these rituals in the caves, which is just fascinating stuff. And um, when I read that, I realized there was a much longer story than the one I'd been exposed to about ancient Greece. It wasn't just ancient Greece. It was this, this, this really poetic kind of history of our relationship to the natural world and what may have happened in times past. So that was, for me, that, that was an awesome book. And you were actually in a podcast with him, correct? On Joe Rogan? Yes. We, yeah. <laughs> uh, he helped me launch the book last, last September. He was there on a little monitor in, on Joe's desk because of uh, COVID prevented him from coming across the sea. <laughs> Amazing. What do you want to tell people about their, you know, wellness and well-being after writing this book? Like what's your main takeaway or call to action uh, if you have a call to action? You know, I'm not sure if you wrote this book more to just uh, bring awareness to this topic or if you wanted to convert people on a particular, um, I guess, conclusion or call to action. But yeah, so I'm just curious, like, do you have a, a main takeaway or call to action or, and if not, like, what would you say, what, what do you want to tell people, um, as their, as your last, you know, main takeaway? Hmm. I mean, I guess, uh, less of a modern call to act and more of a, you know, a call to curiosity. And mm -hmm. I just, I think, you know, um, you know, part of this book is me putting together all these pieces that would not have come together, but for, um, I guess the, the 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 great fortune of 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 studying the humanities and like a liberal arts education, you know, like at some point I dropped that all to go to law school um, and begin to learn how the world actually works and study finance and things like that and work on Wall Street. But you know, again, nights and weekends, I turn back to the love of of my teen years in college, you know, and um, I guess my, my only call would just to be to, to to stay curious and for God's sake to learn a few languages when you're young because you probably you probably won't have time when you're older um, for for various reasons um, and so you know it's probably enhanced your life just 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 growing up multiculturally um, and I've, I've seen it in, in, in my daughters who are growing up multilingually um, it's just I, I think it's 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 the best gift that you can give to young people and the best gift you can give to yourself. Um, and I just think it, it opens the doors to all this, um, all the, all these things that, uh, that uh, no one's going to put together for you. You know, like my, my book is it's equal parts trying to decipher the ancient languages as the modern languages. Um, you know, so much of, of these clues, so, so many of them were, were kind of bound up in German or in Catalan or, you know, in, in Italian. And, um, it's just, it just goes to show that, um, 
you know, once once those language barriers begin to come down, um, this these wonderful mysteries start to unveil themselves, and and you know, the history just might not be what we think it is. Yeah, I mean, this work has kind of shifted my whole <laughs> way of thinking when it comes to religion um, and just some of the even principles on you know, what it even means to show up within a certain faith. Uh, hmm. It's really fascinating. I mean, that's probably an entirely different topic in itself. Uh, but Brian, where can people find you? Uh, you know, are there any resources that you can point folks to other than to pick up the Immortality Key, which I found is not only just on Amazon uh, and other booksellers, but also on Audible? Um so you can find it there, but is there anything else or any other ways that you would like for people to get in touch with you? Maybe it's research uh, or other kind of things. Yeah, for some reason, I do try to respond to DMs on Instagram. I don't know why that is that that's the case, <laughs> but but if I, it's like if, it's like a nice interface for I don't know why. Uh, so feel free to DM me, um, or you can also write me an email. It's on my website. If you go to Brian Morescu dot com or the immortality uh, you'll see all kinds of stuff and there's a contact page I, I do try to respond to those too amazing and we'll leave that link in the show notes so that people can get access to you and we'll also leave a link of the immortality key awesome thank you so much for your time brian i really enjoyed this i know that we just scratched the surface of your work uh, so this is my call to action is that the audience go read your book <laughs> so that they can get, um, you know, all the history and all the research. Uh, but I just found that the thesis of this work is so fascinating. And, you know, people in my network had been telling me for a long time that uh, your your book was game changing for the psychedelic world and also for how we see ourselves within history. So thank you so much. Awesome, man. Shukran gazilin. <laughs> Uh, for our audience, thanks for joining and for listening. In this episode, we learn about the history of psychedelics, and you can tune in to Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one -on -one conversations with leading experts when wellness, well-being, and spirituality. Thanks again.